Hey, this is Professor Leslie Braun. Join us on the 14th of November, 2023, for our next Four Perspectives episode, which is going to be on burnout. In this fascinating discussion, I'm going to talk to the FX Medicine Ambassadors about the differences between anxiety, stress and burnout, including how they're all intertwined, or are they, and the impact they have on our bodies. We're also going to discuss the degrees of burnout that patients can experience and also the risk factors. So tune in to learn a whole new perspective on burnout, prescribing protocols, and what we can do to holistically support our patients. With 64% of Australian workers experiencing burnout, burnout rates amongst healthcare practitioners in particular are reaching even higher, up to over 80% in the last three years. So burnout's now extending well beyond the workplace as well. So it is an episode you can't afford to miss. Welcome to FX Medicine, bringing you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, where we live and work, and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present, and extend this respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Joining us on the line today is Sage King, a fertility naturopath and nutritionist at Rhiannon Hardingham Reproductive Health and self-identifying queer woman with a keen interest supporting and advocating for the LGBTQIA plus community. Sage and I struck up a conversation regarding the emerging language and etiquette around best practice when consulting with people from this community. Many practitioners, including myself, feel a little ignorant and, to be honest, overwhelmed with the seeming complexity of the appropriate language to use in which to not offend. But at the same time, are open to learning the best way to do this so that we not only safely open our clinics to this group, but our hearts and minds as well. Thanks for joining us today, Sage. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. And can I just say uh, a lot of gratitude for you and being so brave in uh, hosting this conversation today. I really appreciate that you're bringing this very important discussion to the forefront. Oh, fabulous. Thank you for that. But before we start, I wanted to acknowledge my privilege. So I am a city-born, white, educated, able-bodied cis woman and acknowledge that I have not been overly disadvantaged in many ways. And I also wanted to acknowledge, and thanks for you to introduce that, Sage, that I'm learning and I hope that my learning journey does not negatively impact anyone else. And I apologise in advance for any misconsiderations. And through this podcast, I'm really happy to be corrected and educated. And that's the point of of why we're having this this conversation. And I'm really um, thrilled to be joined by you today too. So Sage, allow me to start by first asking what your pronouns are. Mm -hmm. So my pronouns are she, her. Okay. And should I ask about gender identity with my patients or is that something that by asking the pronouns that gives me that information? 
it's not really something that you want to be asking patients directly, especially if it's in that first consultation and you haven't really built that rapport and safety for them. So I tend to find that I get a lot of information from new patient forms where it'll ask them their sex assigned at birth and if their pronouns are different to that, it kind of gives you a bit of an insight into them as a person. And you obviously run a practice that has a lot of people from the LGBTQIA plus community. Why is inclusivity so important? I suppose it's really important because everyone deserves the right to equal healthcare and just equal rights in general. And we'll go through these terms later, but the cisgender community that are also heterosexual see themselves everywhere. And representation really, really matters. So Mm. there's a lot of medical trauma with this patient group. And so there can be a lot of fear around seeking medical services. So I never set out to completely specialise in LGBT support. However, just by being visible and open to this patient group, it's just what I've attracted from there. Mm, Fantastic. So you mentioned medical trauma. Like, Can you give us some examples of of something of what you mean by that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. So if patients go to uh, a medical professional, for example, and their gender identity may be different to what uh, their sex is assigned at birth, many individuals have experienced prejudice in those situations where the practitioner's viewpoints on whether their gender identity is valid or not is then reflected back to that patient. So Mm. this community really has to advocate for themselves, even in a really what you would consider safe space in a medical setting, you know, where they have to then try and really advocate for them to get tests that they want or referrals for gender-affirming hormone replacement therapy, which thankfully has improved over the recent years. But, you know, I don't think many people appreciate the fact that if you're not part of this community group, that you get to go and see a practitioner that you don't have to educate while you're paying for their time before they can Mm. understand and then support you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also it, it's so tiring to be able to do that. It's not just a time thing and, a, and an education, but it's it's tiring and exhausting to try and, I guess, show yourself and be seen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Emotional labour is a, is a real thing. Yeah, it's a beautiful term as well. Mm. So I wanted to open this conversation up by really just exploring the acronym LGBTQIA+, and what yeah. it stands for. So how many is there? There's eight. So we've got we've got eight <laughs> different um, areas to explore. So I know you do yep. this really beautifully. So yeah, let's go. Let's start from the top and let's start with L. Okay. Great. Let's start. Oh, I call it the LGBT alphabet because there's only so many. <laughs> yeah, exactly. LGBTQIA plus. So <laughs> let's it's getting it's top. getting easier and easier. It's, it rolls off the tongue when you say it. More. It does. Yep. Yeah. Practice makes perfect, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So uh, L stands for lesbian, and this is usually a woman whose primary sexual orientation is towards people of the same gender, but Mm -hmm. it may also include individuals either assigned female or male at birth that identify as a woman or non-binary, and it also may include non-binary people who have a connection to womanhood and are primarily attracted to women. If we then go through to G, so G stands gay, usually a man whose primary sexual orientation is towards people of the same gender. And again, like lesbians, also includes individuals either assigned male or female at birth that identify as a man or not. 
Yeah. Um, so I think, I think that so far. <laughs> well, they're they're the classic ones that have been, I guess, probably on the radar for for a long time in history. Yeah. So, so with that non-binary, mm-hmm. just as you're saying that, like, tell us what non-binary means. So non-binary is an individual that doesn't identify as male or female or may identify as both. So their gender identity can fall on that spectrum between Mm. male, female or neither or both. Okay. And while we're here as well, I'll just explain the assigned female and the assigned male at birth because I think that's a really integral thing for practitioners to understand. You know, and we're getting our head around primarily the transgender community, which also is inclusive of the non-binary and gender fluid community is that there's this talking about biological sex um, and, and trying to understand that. But where the language sits at the moment, the, the terms that we should be using around that patient group is assigned male at birth or AMAB um, or yep. assigned female at birth, AFAB. Is that a safer term than using biological sex? Yes, absolutely. Yes. absolutely. Okay, cool. So, AMAB and AFAB are what um, practitioners should be using. And so obviously for the listener too, we're going to have some examples of these, um, what we've discussed. So perhaps even like a a printout that that almost like a cheat sheet as as we start to become more familiar. We're going to go back to those, that acronym in a second, but what I've Mm -hmm. noticed even through our conversation and then speaking to my teenage kids who Mm -hmm. are all over this, and just the education and just noticing my unconscious bias and my automation, you uh, know, my my brain automation, trying to change that brain automation uh, takes uh-huh. some time. Um, so with does. conscious and, effort. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, it's not something that, you know, I'm not that young, I suppose. Like I'm 33. I, I grew up with a very... Come on, Sage. You're I young. Know, I know, I know, I <laughs> know. But still, comparatively to your teenagers, like they have yeah, that that's right. language down pat. But for me, it mm. was still a very much learnt thing, a conscious decision that I had to make to really change the way that I thought through the binary and the language that I used around that. Um, yeah. And I've definitely made mistakes with patients and I've definitely mm. said the wrong thing, but I think it's just about being open and willing and comfortable in knowing that you might say the wrong thing. And that's okay, like trying is the best possible thing that you can do. Yeah, that's fabulous advice. So, okay, we're up to B. We're up to B for bisexual. So a person whose primary sexual and affectional orientation is towards people of the same and other genders. And we may have heard the term pansexuality Mm. and that's an umbrella term that sits under bisexual. So if you're pansexual, which is what I identify as, is a person whose primary sexual and affectional orientation is towards people regardless of their gender. So Mm. bisexual tends to sit still within that binary of, you know, I'm attracted to men and women, whereas pansexual is just attracted to people regardless of their gender. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And there's a term called bisexual erasure. Am I saying Mm -hmm. that right? Like, yeah, tell us about that. I mean, you yeah, can explain yeah. it better than me. Yeah. yeah, of course. So bisexual erasure is a real issue both within the LGBT community and the broader community, and it's where you may identify as, as a bisexual, however, potentially you're in a heterosexual presenting relationship. So maybe you're a bisexual woman and you're in a relationship with a man. And so it's that thing of, well, 
bisexual, their identity doesn't exist because of the current relationship that they're in and so their identity gets erased in all of that. Oh, and I see, yeah. As well, yep. there's been a long line history of like, well, just pick one. If you like both, then why not just pick a side? You know, it's. I, I think that group, it, it's really a lot harder to navigate when you are just att- attracted to people. I think it's much easier for people that don't identify as part of the LGBT community to get their head around being attracted to same sex or opposite sex. Yeah, so, and again, it comes back to that exhausting. It must be exhausting having to kind of explain these things or even need to explain these things. Yeah, yeah, look, it really is. But, you know, I feel like for myself and my lived experience, I get away with uh, a lot of that external bias because I present as a heterosexual woman, even though mm. that I'm not what we in the community call straight passing. Um, whereas, you know, What's my that? partner gender fluid and um, you can absolutely tell that she is gay and so she definitely gets a lot more harassment uh, in the external Mm. world. So I find it not as taxing on me to advocate for this community group versus others within Mm. it. Okay. So transgender, tell us about transgender. So transgender is an umbrella term for individuals whose gender is different from cultural expectations based on their sex assigned at birth. So an example of that is um, an individual assigned female at birth, but they identify as a man. It can also describe someone who identifies as a gender other than woman or man. And that's what I was mentioning earlier, like the non-binary, gender queer or no gender community also sit underneath the transgender umbrella. Um, And Underneath transgender as well as trans, so trans tends to be the the word that we hear most at the moment, but it's a more inclusive term for gender non-conforming and non-binary folks. So transgender, you're thinking individuals who still sit within that binary, however it is different from the sex assigned at birth, whereas trans is more anyone that sits other along that scale or neither Mm. of the and so it doesn't necessarily mean somebody's transgendering as in like their their gender is being changed. It could just be an identity. Is that Absolutely. is that right? Yeah. Yes, correct. So you can be uh, you can be like a trans man, for example. However, you don't need to have gender affirming hormone replacement therapy mm. to be it's just an identity and some people yeah. want to then physically transition to affirm their gender and others are still quite comfortable in the way that they present in the world it's very different mm. for each individual fascinating I feel like even just this um, discussion alone is just really helping clarify that's really important thank you oh, um, my pleasure <laughs> so queer tell, tell us about Q Yes, queer. So queer is a word that was historically used as a slur against people whose gender or gender expression or sexuality didn't conform to societal expectations. However, in recent times, queer is definitely a term that's been reclaimed by some as a celebration of not fitting into these norms. So I tend to use this term for myself quite a lot. However, not all who identify as part of this community use queer to describe themselves Mm. and still a term that is considered hateful when it's used by individuals who don't identify as LGBTQIA+. So it's one of those things where it's okay for us to say it, but it's not okay Mm. for us to say it. And so like with you, Sage, if you identify Mm -hmm. as queer, if you and I were friends, would would that be okay or 
what what's the boundary there? Yeah, totally. I think it's just all about um, it's all about consent. So if mm. you use a term to describe me, for example, or if, you know, I've come forward and said I identify as a queer woman, it would be okay for you to repeat that. But if there's anything that you wanted to use in relation to me in a conversation, just ask. And that's what I Mm. do with my parents as well. Like, you know, is it okay if I ask you blah, blah, blah? And they can either say, yeah, sure. And give you the answer or they'll be like, no, I don't feel comfortable discussing that. And then no harm, no foul. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah, this is such good information. Inter- intersex <laughs> is the is the I. So, mm-hmm. so intersex um, is an umbrella term that's used to describe a range of natural body variations that don't, I suppose, neatly fit into conventional definitions of male or female sex at birth. Mm. And these variations can include but aren't I suppose, aren't limited to things like uh, chromosomal compositions, hormone concentrations, and also external and internal genital characteristics. Okay. So this population makes up, I think it's about 1.7% of the overall population. Of the overall LGBTQI community population or overall no, population? No, of, our, of like the entire population. Right. That's quite a lot, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is quite a lot, yeah. So the last one, except for the plus, we're going to get, get into the plus. Yeah, so we're getting to A. I know, asexual. So tell us about yeah. that. Yes, asexual. So asexual is, how do I describe it simply? Basically, it's characterised by varying degrees of sexual attraction or desires for partnered sexuality. Um it's, I suppose people think asexual and they think along the lines of celibacy where they don't want to have sex with anyone at all. However, it still sits on a spectrum where they still may may want to experience other forms of intimacy, whereas other people may not want to experience any of that at all. That's interesting too. So yeah. there's still, I mean, I think from a sexual health perspective, it's still really, if someone's identifying as asexual, it's important we don't assume that they haven't had any sexual intimacy contact. So, you know, that's really important for practitioners too. Absolutely. Uh, So, yes, the plus. That's that's a a newer addition, is it, or Um, or is that just a way of kind of of saying, okay, this is an expanding space? Yes. um, So the plus stands for an expanding space um, because this community group, you know, is forever evolving and changing and I have no doubt that within another year or so there's going to be a change to what is safe and not safe for this population group Um, Mm. but other terms that I just wanted to make mention of that also fall within that plus umbrella are the terms brother boy sister girl and two spirit so um Brother Boy is for our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander transmasculine individuals, so they're gender diverse people who have what they call a male spirit and take on male roles within the community as to what the consensus is, I suppose, as to what men and women's roles are within the community. And uh, Sister Girl is the same but for those uh, with a trans feminine identity, so take on female roles within the community with a female spirit. And the Two-Spirit community is an Indigenous trans identity for those over in Turtle Island or the States. And they um, they have what they call both masculine and feminine spirit. So similar mm. to non-binary except they harness both of those 
energies. I suppose these gender uh, identities have actually been around for a really, really long time. There are especially, you know, they've been a part of our Indigenous communities forever Um, and it's just that we as Westerners are really catching up in terms of the language that we have to describe um, this community group. I think that's really fascinating from a cultural and historical perspective that that is there because I think that there's a, a prejudice, you know, mm. of, of why there's so many new gender identity expressions coming yes. out within the community. But, in fact, it's a coming out rather than it's not that it hasn't been there all along. Exactly, exactly. And so I think especially if we use the uh, non-binary group, for example, you know, we've only just really had language to describe people who don't feel male or female on the inside and didn't know what that meant for them and Mm. were so lost by their identity. But now that we have the language, they can be like, oh, my God, that's me. I've been feeling like that forever. You know, so I, I just think it's really great that this language is evolving. And I think, you know, not feeling like you belong or are different is incredibly confronting for human beings because we're kind of we're born to belong we're born to be social and connected and and just that sense of not belonging just marginalizes people from their communities you know and and that exclusion and ignorance and 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 suffering all of that disadvantage so have you noticed say let's you know well, I've noticed with my teenagers over the last sort of 10 years it's mm-hmm. come to my attention through through them and obviously through, you know, information such as you're bringing to the table as well. But is it making a noticeable difference for this community? Well, I suppose I can't speak on behalf of the entire community because, you know, my lived experience isn't one that is gender fluid or of, you know, I'm not transgender. So, you mm. know, I can't speak on behalf of them, but from the the friendship groups that I have and and those that are dear in my life that are of that identity, yes, I genuinely think so. And even with my patients, something as simple as writing a referral letter to their GP, I always ask, what pronouns do you want me to use on your referral letter? Because I don't want to out you to another medical practitioner if you don't feel safe. Even something as little as that they're so grateful for because of that, wow, no one's actually ever asked me that before. So, you know, and being seen as who you are would do wonders for anyone, I think. I mean, I totally agree. I mean, recognising and being seen or not being seen, I mean, most of us know the feeling of not being seen, but not Mm. being seen by our greater community would be even more distressing in in many ways and and also you know language is language is such an amazing thing really too like just having a word even though it may not be 100% perfect even getting closer and closer to yes you know I can understand that meaning has an effect on our neurology as well like oh it sort of it gives us a safety within our neurology and that is a really powerful healing aspect as well absolutely absolutely so I loved actually how you kind of, you know, use the term outed. Tell uh-huh. us a little bit more about that because obviously, you know, it's still a long way for us to go as practitioners to really create that safe space and even yeah. even if we're well-intentioned because when you're from a, a community that has been less than perfectly understood, <laughs> for want of a better <laughs> word, um, you know, it takes a while to develop trust. Uh-huh. So how do we start the learning what is 
how do we as practitioners grow from here? Like what, what are some simple things that you think like this is a great place to start? Mm-hmm. Good question. The important place to start is just starting. Um, I think being open to it and I think just understanding that you are going to say the wrong thing and that's okay. It's just about how you recover from that. So I find even in my own personal experience um, in talking to others or trying to educate other practitioners that come to me like, what do I do? Um, It's that thing of not centering yourself in that moment. So if you were to say something to me and I just corrected you on it, it's not something that you need to make this really big apology and, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry and I did this because blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just a, hey, thanks for correcting me. I'm so sorry. I'll try to use the Mm. right phrase in the future or something like that. Well, If someone corrects you, could that be seen as a sign that they feel safe enough to correct you? Absolutely, yes. Yep, for and, sure. And so in some ways, like to, to help centre yourself if they're, if they're confident enough to correct you, then, you know, from a practitioner's point of view, if we can create that and just find that safety within within ourselves, you know, the safety of making a mistake mm-hmm. um, because, we're you know, most practitioners are always trying to do their best and so you know, that could be a way of sort of reframing of like, well, the consciousness is growing, you know, so mm-hmm. that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, reframing it like that is really important. And if you feel uncomfortable in that moment, I also like to think about how uncomfortable the patient is in that moment, having to bring yeah. something someone they may not know at that stage. So it's just uncomfortable for everyone. And that's cool. And it's just a, hey, thanks, I'm going to try to do better next time and then you can move yeah. on. You know, we spoke about the power of language but there's also the power of language in terms of signage within the clinic, uh, mm-hmm. uh, patient intake forms, yeah. website information mm-hmm. and those kind of things because, ag- again, what do you mean and, and is there some really good, clear suggestions that you have for us that we can do really easily? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, you know, if you, you think about all of those things that you've just mentioned, there needs to be some signifier of safety for this community. So um, if we think about it from a marketing perspective, what, what language are you using on your website when you describe women's health? What language are you using when you're, um, you know, maybe doing an Instagram live or a video and you always greet everyone with, hi, guys. Um, you know, just looking at how how exclusive your language is and it's not mm. about removing and I suppose this is a really key point that I want to get across to everyone today. Inclusivity isn't about removing other minority groups such as women, right? It's just about giving everyone a seat at the table. So, I mean, I work in fertility, so I talk about reproductive health all day, every day. And Mm. you can talk about women's health, but you can also talk about the health of all people that have a uterus Mm. and all menstruators. So I think reassessing the language that you use around that. I support mothers who breastfeed and actually all parents who chest feed as well. Um, Mm. And if you can see themselves within that language, you are a safe space for that community group. Another really simple thing is just adding your... LGBT flag, Torres Strait Islander flag and Indigenous flags to the bottom of your websites, potentially, like I have it also in my email signature, just Mm -hmm. again, a virtual signifier of safety and inclusivity for these community groups. 
Just a note on on breastfeeding, because one of the things yeah. that came to mind with that is that men have breasts and women have breasts. Is that for the yeah. gender non-binary when we say chest feeding, for example? Yeah. Yes. yes. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Pick up, Michelle. That's great. Yes. Some of the non-binary community have had their breasts removed and, um, you know, they don't, I suppose it's a point of, what's the word I'm looking for now? I can't a distinction? Just a point of distinction, is it? Or? Uh, point, so say your body looks and feels different to how you feel on the inside. There's a specific phrase for that yes. term. But anyway, yeah. yeah, it's just so it's not uh, it's not triggering for them because they don't have breasts, therefore they're not breastfeeding. Um, yes. Just an all-inclusive term for everyone really. And I think also like even just breaking down, you know, you mentioned reproductive health and menstrual health, it, it's actually more distinctive, you know, really. I mean women's health is an umbrella term anyway mm-hmm. and what does that actually mean and, and why do we distinguish it so much from from men's health. I mean, obviously, you know, there's a genital area and, and those kind of things. I call it bikini mm-hmm. medicine. But really the health of a woman or mm-hmm. people identifying as women is also neurological. There's distinctions in in characteristics and cultural identity and, and social health that are really important as well. And by saying women's health, we're actually excluding a lot of that or creating, I guess, a, a smaller term really. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I think also, though, in that women have had to fight really hard to get where they are. Like they're definitely their own minority group within themselves. And I think that, as I said, it's it's about recognising recognizing everyone and giving everyone a seat at the table because at the end of the day, we're on the same team. <laughs> we we <Yes>. have, <laughs> yeah. you know, similar disadvantages. They all have their own individual challenges, but yeah, it's um yeah. it's important that that women have their own language, but it's never at the detriment of any other community. Yeah, it's a kind of that that thing of like of power with, you know, rather than power over. I mean, there's no group that's any more important or significant than any other group and and by bringing everybody to the table, you know, we're creating a much more diversity but much more empowering group because diversity is, I mean, it's the key to any ecosystem, you know, it's the key to rainforest health and um, Uh biodiversity is the key to environmental health. And so diversity within the human community is clearly where, where we're going to get some real gold. Absolutely. Yeah, Mm. sure. So this has been absolutely fantastic and I've learned so much. Um, how can we learn more as practitioners? Like is there some resources that we can then utilise to really embrace this and as, as we move forward? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually did a, a free half-hour presentation on all of this in much greater detail um, and it's available on our website. So um, I'll, I'm pretty sure I've given FX Medicine the link to that so it'll be provided for listeners if they want to follow up from there. Um, but also there's a really great pictograph that I use all the time when I present and it's on the website called trans, T-R-A-N-S, student.org. And from there, they've got a really great but relevantly uh, up-to-date list of all of these terms and resources um, so that if a term does come up in practice and you're like, oh, I don't know what that is, just pop onto their website and you'll be able to find it there. 
and, you know, other other resources if we look more locally. Um, I know ACON, so just A-C-O-N, have some really great uh, resources online um, and they also do what I love, which is a diversity days um, program. So they have free resources for every single LGBT um, celebration day on the calendar each year. And they've got pre-made, um, pre-made marketing materials and um, resources for each day as well that are just good to go for practitioners to use. So um, if you're not really knowing how to make yourself visible um, from a social media perspective, for example, that's a really great place to start. That's, um, it's amazing and, and it's so great that we can share these resources that, you know, to really build up that language and that connection, but also the, the commitment, you know, to, to diversity that I think we all um, hope for. So thank you so much, Sage, for taking the time with us today. Personally, I've learned so much and I'm so grateful to be educated about this really important issue. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. And thank you, as I said earlier, for being brave to hold a discussion such as this when you're not feeling all confident in navigating it. And I hope it's really inspiring for other practitioners to be able to feel like they can do the same. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi, this is Lara Bryden. For many women, the years leading up to the final period can be a time of neurological symptoms, including higher perceived stress, anxiety, brain fog, migraines, and sleep disturbance. To learn more about the underlying mechanisms of neurological change, as well as assessment and treatment strategies, join me on November 15th for a Bioceuticals Clinical Mastery Class. You can book your spot at bioceuticals.com.au. See you there.